0: Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico from the Made in China podcast, Source Asia consulting company, and the Source Fine Asia YouTube channel. So, in this episode, uh, we actually split it in two. I had the chance to sit down, I think this is the third episode I've done where I sat down with one of my clients, um, and it's Mark O'Connell from DPS. Um, he has a Sydney based company, started off as a printing company, um, and then, yeah, like, way, way. A while ago, like 20, 30 years ago, and uh, eventually evolved into what it is now, which is still doing print, but they kind of created, they kind of became a factory. Um, you know, before they were outsourcing a lot of that print work, so almost like a trading company uh, or a buying agent, rather. And then now they've become, you know, a consulting company for people in Australia who need to buy products in China, and they work with us. So he's one of my clients, and he, on the projects that make sense, we work together on. Um, for example, we did something for the Australian government with something like 75,000 um, cotton messenger bags that we we produced here in China. So interesting episode. I think this is more of an episode on how your business can evolve over time. Um, I've been getting a lot more interest from Australia, like, you know, inquiries, people watch a YouTube channel, customers, of course, and, you know, Mark has a very relevant experience for people that are in similar positions where, you know, they might be buying locally and then they're getting to a stage where their orders are big enough that it makes sense to go to China and they're going to save a ton of money by going to China. So that's what this episode is about. So enjoy part one. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be
1: a product of me.
0: Okay, so Mark, maybe let's start at the beginning. How did you get into entrepreneurship?
1: Uh, entrepreneurship, it's probably not a title I associate myself so much, I guess, in, the, in what I consider or sort of what I see uh, or perceive entrepreneurs to be, I guess. Um, I'm the owner of a, of, a, of a business here in Australia, a printing business, um, and I guess through the nature of our work, you know, we've sort of diversified into different markets and, and very much so into the into the promotional um, sort of market, which has then led us to do, you know, a number of things that I'm, I'm sure we'll chat about today. But um, I guess from that point of view, I, I probably see myself more as um, a small business owner or a small businessman that uh, has sort of led into this this sort of area, which I guess sort of falls into the, the entrepreneurship uh, sort of spectrum, I guess. So, what do you view as entrepreneurship? I think of entrepreneurs... As people primarily that come up with new ideas. You know, a number of the people that I've heard you interview, um, or people that have not, in some cases, not necessarily come up with new ideas, but taken a particular idea and expanded on it, or gone out very much by themselves to set something up to achieve something. Um, I guess I'll sort of drop into the, the entrepreneur sort of area, which is probably not the correct you know, definition of it, but it's it's more, I guess, perception.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think it's probably changed over the years, right? Like over time. I think uh, right now, I think Gary Vaynerchuk talks about it, is like entrepreneurship is, is sexy, so everybody's an entrepreneur these days. Yeah, it's definitely a term that I think has evolved over time.
1: I think in the old days, an entrepreneur was very, very unique. It wasn't sort of a term that we heard so much A few years back, but it's certainly more of a term. And maybe that's why my my take on perception of it is different to maybe someone that's a little younger. um, Whereas it's a a term that I've heard for a long time, but it's certainly
0: changed in more recent years, I guess. So you you started a small print shop and then that sort of grew into what it is right now. And then you started sourcing from China? Yeah, that's right. I guess I sort of bring
1: a little, I I think I bring it. Different sort of perspective to, to um, as I said, li- you know, listening to your podcast over over the last year or so, um, I sort of come in from a different angle or from a different um, a way, a different way in which we're sort of approaching what it is we're doing. Um, I have a business here. I'm in partnership with another chap. Um, we've got about uh, sure, about eight full time employees. And the core of it, or its core business, is it's a it's a printing business. It's a commercial print business. Um, we've been going for 20 years now. We started back in the late 90s, um, and when we started, we were purely a brokerage, a straight brokerage business in in the printing industry. So, if you need me to sort of ex- you know go into more detail there, I can no problems as to as to how that uh, how that sort of type of business operates. But I'm sure most people are probably. familiar with brokerage type setups so um in that yeah you could give like a a 30 second overview so it it probably sounds a little strange to some maybe um but a brokerage i'm I'm, you know there's brokerages in all sorts of industries um but in the printing industry i guess um it was really a case of uh certainly going back a number of years in the, the type of printing that was done which has changed a lot um in these days you know in other words moving from more offset or more traditional type printing methods into the digital world that we see today with wide formats and, and, and digital machines. Back Going back a few years, if you had invested in that sort of printing equipment, it was very, very expensive. Um, and like most things, um, there are different, I guess, scalable sizes of printing businesses. And depending on what type of machinery you had bought, sort of pigeonholes you a little bit into what sort of printing you can do um so if you've got a small machine and you've got a customer that needs to do a very large run then obviously it's going to be a lot more expensive for you to do that through machine time and, um, and economies of scale versus somebody that's got very large machinery to do large print runs of say you know say it's hundred or 200 thousand flyers or something like that and conversely someone that's got a very large machine if you want a box of business cards then that's you know certainly not the the most cost-effective place to go to so from the brokerage point of view what we would do is sit between the client and and quite a number of printers with different size machines different capabilities different attributes different markets and sort of bring that into one point of contact so that you develop a relationship with your customer where they come to you and they could get their business cards their flyers, their whole spectrum of what they would need across their business from one place and yes, you are sitting between them and the machine, but you're bringing to them the knowledge of knowing what sort of job goes on what equipment, um, and so from that aspect or from that business model, you're hopefully, you're bringing the client, you know, good economies of scale across a whole spectrum of things that they might need need for their business.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, so that's how we um, that's how our business started in the nineties, in the in the late nineties. Um, as purely just of that as that business model, we didn't manufacture anything. Um, and then, as the years as the years went on, um, things changed in the printing industry, like like all industries. I mean, I'm going to sound a little bit old here, but when we opened up our first office, um, we didn't. I mean, the internet, you in <laughs> know, this probably wouldn't make you laugh. The you know, internet was very much in its infancy, and. Um, we actually had a we had a modem in our office. There was four of us in this uh, small office. Everything was mm-hmm. done. Uh, books and uh, audio orders were written out. They're all faxed um, or a fax machine. We had one modem in the office, which was a dial-up modem, um, and we had one computer, and that computer would accept emails. So we're back at a stage where there wasn't a lot done via Via email, very, very small amounts of artwork, and I mean small amounts of artwork, might be transferred um, via email, but very, very little. So we really were sort of at the back end of you know, where a lot of industries are today. So has that evolved? Um, so the artwork then was faxed? Wow. No, it wasn't even faxed. <laughs> You you couldn't fax artwork because you'd have to shoot a plate for a printing press, um, and you couldn't do that no. often. Copy it um, just couldn't be done. So, so literally, I mean literally. If um, say for example, you were getting a, you were getting a business card done, um, you might ring that through, and you might say, "This isn't a new business card or whatever." Um, I would I would personally get in my car drive about. Maybe 25 minutes, half an hour to where our typesetter was that had a computer, which there weren't many of that were doing this sort of graphic type of work. That typesetter would typeset your business card with your name and all your details. We would print one out on her black and white printer. You would then take that, put that in your car, and
0: then you would drive it to your client. <laughs> so I was just thinking, like, um, if you were trying to get something printed in China from Australia, then how. <laughs> Yeah, how like, would that no just, how would that work? It just
1: didn't work. It just didn't work. <laughs> um, I don't even think that was even on the that wasn't even on the spectrum. That wasn't even on the right. Yeah. No, there wasn't um the only thing that you would have seen in that was printed in China would have been a uh, you know, like a Harry
0: Potter book or something like that it wasn't around anyway. Yeah. Um so whoever was dealing with that would have had to fly oh, to China oh, without question.
1: Well we're going we're certainly going back. Um we're not quite going back to uh little letters in, in in holes that you put in with a with a hammer and use the press like that. But we're certainly as far as um moving of artwork as we know it today, the internet as we know it today and, and, and moving files around as we know it today, uh, this was certainly well before well before that. I mean we've got to go through um, from here we've a three and a quarter inch, well we got a five and a half inch floppy disk, three and a quarter five USB, we get the USBs, then we go to then finally, only um, then transferring files um, via PDFs through the internet, and then from there you go to your, your file transfers and things like that. So there's been quite a number of steps from um, from when you got in your car and drove a piece of paper to your client, and uh, and God forbid they put a full stop in there or something like that, and then you'd have to drive back, get a change, and have to input <laughs> to to literally, you know, pressing a button and sending a file from Australia to China if you wanted to, to, um, to get something printed. Okay. The only reason I say that I was going to go, I sort of went down that path a little bit. That sort of leads into um, the involvement of um, our business through the involvement of the printing industry into the digital era of... Uh, digital machines which then changed the face of printing massively so a digital machine as you know it today might be can be something as simple as a a colored photocopier in your um, in your office the ability to walk up to a machine and press a button and have a colored piece of paper come out of it um, was a massive um, change to the printing industry probably not so much in um in the environment of a business, in the environment of an office, that's not such a big deal. I mean, colour copiers came in, um, certainly in Australia, they were in the, the late 90s. I know from a commercial aspect, those machines didn't exist. So, for example, if you wanted 2,000 flyers, for example, there were not digital machines of a of a commercial nature that allowed you to do them. So you were still sort of into the, into the offset sort of um, type of printing. But with the introduction of that sort of equipment into the commercial world, then the printing industry started to change massively and uh, you didn't need to use film and plates and all the setup costs to do these small runs. So That was sort of like the first major change was the introduction of digital equipment on that level that allowed us to do the smaller print runs uh, from there very quickly the customer then became very much aware of being able to walk down the road to a local print shop now when I, and when I talk about a print shop that we are we're a we're a commercial type printing place we're not um, where you walk down we walk in um, I mean we have what we call snap stores and quick copy and things like that which are I guess retail places that the average person off the street walks into and, you know, gets their basic business cards or flyers or whatever the case may be. Ours is a, very much a B2B very much where we're dealing work with companies and things like that as opposed to the person on the street.
0: Mm-hmm. But um, even,
1: those, even those customers then started to realise very quickly what it cost, for example, to run 2,000 flyers um, on a type machine because those sort of stores start to pop up more and more. So... Where I'm going with that is is that having a business which was purely a brokerage business, in other words, you're sitting between the client and the machine, if you like, um, that part of the market or that part of our business became very vulnerable in that somebody could walk down the road if they wanted 2,000 supplies. And also... Um, in in partnership was that was also the invention of desktop publishing. I guess if you like, so um, the average person on the street, all of a sudden, whilst sometimes pretty crude, the average person on the street could buy a program like Publisher, which was made by Microsoft, or very slowly get into self-publishing on their own computer. So that I mean that took quite a few years to develop to where it is now, but. You can see that that part of our business or that part of the market was starting to shrink, and people were then being able to do these things themselves. And, like anything, you know, once um, sort of things sort of start sticking in your business, then you know, if you don't start to look at it, start to change things, then you know, sometimes you can go, it
0: can it potentially can go south. So, what did you start to change, and then how did you? I think from what you told me before with the internet and, and your client base growing, people started to ask you to actually buy source products for them.
1: Yeah, so what happened very quickly from 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 where we are just just there with the digital side of things, we were then we then made the decision in our business to put our own manufacturing equipment in as far as the digital market goes, so wide format and digital type of work so then we were able to produce that work more cost effective than buying it off somebody else and therefore we could then service our customers again so that ramped our business up quite significantly so we were sort of like we went from a situation where it was sort of like you know this thing's starting to creep away in at this end of the the town but then we took the step of which was a big step for us, um, putting in all, all of our – we invested the money and put our own digital equipment in-house. So we had a typesetter, we had a graphic designer, we had our own digital machines, we had our own wide format machines. Um, and, of course, that enabled us to then produce it for a much more cost-effective than
0: giving it to somebody and on selling it, obviously. It's funny because I see the I see the parallels there with with a lot of – there's a lot of – there's a trend um, – with the life cycle of trading companies in China, a lot of the trading a lot of factories started off as trading companies, or if you wanna you can call it a brokerage, um, where they you know, they're working in between the client and the and, and factories and then as they grew over time they sort of buy their own equipment and start making the products themselves so they're able to make it at a lower cost and and, and be more profitable. Um I don't know. If, I don't know if like that's necessarily something that I want to do because I know that running a factory is, is pretty intense. But I was just, it's just interesting that I, I saw the sort of the parallels there.
1: Yeah, and that's you know what, that's an exact parallel. That's an exact parallel because, um, and I wasn't sure if you were going to say that, but it potentially lends itself to, I guess, to some of the trading companies not being around for maybe as long as they'd like to be because yeah. Yeah, as um as the internet
0: changes, as um, things change, as as exactly what we're talking about now. Well, it's I mean it's already happened, right? Like because if you think about the early days of Alibaba or even before Alibaba existed, trading companies used to benefit a lot because they had um, they had English speaking staff and and there was no real way for somebody to deal with a factory directly in an in an effective way if if they weren't in China, you know, full-time. And even then, they might still want to work with an agent um, and, you know, those agents, because the agents can speak both both languages. And then even with the invention of Alibaba, the opening of Alibaba, still the vast majority of the companies that were first on the platform or had the sort of staff to deal with uh, foreign sales were still trading companies and the factories just want to focus on producing. They don't want to focus on the sales side of things. But yeah. What's happened since then is people have become more savvy. Um, they figured out ways to sort of suss out, you know, the trading companies. and work directly with the factory. so the trading companies are already beginning to suffer. Um, and then I think personally, like I, I talked about this when uh, in um, I did a I did a. Channel at the Cross Border Summit and the YouTube videos up there. I said that what's going to happen is, and it's already kind of happening, is there's going to be more direct uh, direct communication between the clients and the factories. Platforms being set up where a client can go on this platform, find the factory, set up the order, do an inspection through the platform, take a virtual tour of the factory, see their products as they're being made um, through you know videos that are cameras that are set up in the factory and, and sort of monitor the the whole production process from their computer through a platform. And that's that's what's going to happen, you know? So that lends itself to be like, okay, as as a creating company, you have to innovate with the times. And I think for me personally, I, I, I think that people are always going to need experts to consult with. Absolutely.
1: Um, without cutting you short there, and I hope... What I was saying before didn't sort of labour on because, yeah, I can like I can see exactly what you're saying with the trading companies, and that's an, that's, a, that's a perfect parallel to to what was potentially could have happened to us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Sorry, but leading from um, leading from that that digital side, it then I guess opened our eyes up to the need to look at being able to diversify. Mm -hmm. So with the success of that introduction of that side of the business and bringing in that manufacturing equipment, similar to what you're saying with the trading companies turning into factories, um, we obviously saw the benefit of that. Uh, And in our industry, uh, I guess, for those that want to get into it, and I suppose we're a little bit more malleable or a little bit more flexible in doing it, coming from the background of being a break or, you know, it's not a bad terminology or bad um, parallel with the, the, um, the trading company, is that I guess unlike starting out as a factory, we were more open to change and more open to looking for, for different things to complement what it was we were doing as opposed to having invested all this money in a particular type of machine. So, mm-hmm. from the digital side, that's where we sort of lead into what I guess you and I are talking about. We moved also into clothing. Um, and when I talk about moving into clothing, I'm purely talking about buying um, clothing from our trade suppliers here and embellishing it with a with a company logo or something like that. So, um, you know, whether you're screen printing something on the back of it or embroidering something on the front of it. So when I talk about clothing, we haven't actually got into the textile market, so to speak, as far as touching anything like that. But if you start to think about it, say, for example, you've got a so you've got a plumber who's one of your customers and they come to you for their business cards and their invoice books, for example, and then they want to do some flyers. Well, all of a sudden now you can be printing their business cards. You might still have to send their books out to a traditional printer, but then you're printing their flyers. Now, all of a sudden they need some t shirts or some polo shirts with their company plumbing name on it. Uh-huh. Uh, too, so we sort of got into that. And from there, we then moved into the promotional market, and which brings us to, I guess... Where we're sort of heading to, as we speak. So the promotional market then became part of our business. So our business was then a, I guess, and still is, um, on the offset side of printing, or in that part of the printing world, we're still a brokerage. But we have our, uh, but on top of that, we have digital. We also do all the clothing, and we also do all the promotional merchandise
0: that a company may need. So promotional, for like, for example, the. Um we did. Do, we've done two orders with uh, with the the government, and one was like a stamp, and the other one was a bag. Would you Would you consider those the promotional products? There,
1: that's that's probably where we've sort of leveraged or not leveraged. That's where we've worked towards over the last ten. years. I guess talking about a promotional product in its infancy, might be a company mm. that wants. Um, probably not so much magnets, I guess that still falls into the printing side of things, but they may want some pens or mm-hmm. they want some, you know, they might want a squeegee ball to, in the shape of a toilet, you know what I mean, to, to give to all the yeah. clients yeah. or something like that. So when we talk about promotional stuff, um, that it started in its infancy with, just your very basic sort of promotional items that are that a that a small business might might have or might be able to use a a reusable coffee cup or something like that. So so orders back might have been for 50 of those or a hundred of those or or something like that. So it was all pretty sort of um, in the in the early days that is um, it was all just that, you know, very run of the mill type promotional sort of stuff. Uh, from there it obviously then over the years over the last, and I suppose we started playing with promotional stuff maybe 10, 15 years ago. It's only been the last sort of six or seven years, I guess, that that side of the business, which we really didn't put a lot of um, thought or emphasis on or too much credence or kudos, I guess, um, just sort of started to slowly build. And we sort of very much then saw our business as being, which I, I guess, well, for us anyway, not for, for all businesses, I'm sure, but for us it was sort of morphing into something that we were comfortable with because then you had income streams from different areas, from different areas of printing, from clothing, from the promotional side. So on a great day, they're all going, you know, from all those areas. On a not-so-great day, maybe... You know, there's not too many print orders, but there's clothing orders, or someone pops up with a promotional order.
0: Okay, put them all together. Um, so then that that sort of scales up to a stage where you the orders are large enough where it doesn't really make sense for you to be buying from the the brokers or the the traders in in Australia.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. So that I guess brings us to to right exactly to where we are today. So here in Australia, and I guess it's the same in in all countries, I would guess, or most countries in, in this sort of segment of the market, we have companies here um, that sell promotional items but on a trader only basis. We have a, uh, an organisation here called APA, the um, Australian Promotional Products Association, I think it is, um, and the, they have companies that are members. So, if, for example, if you're a company that is importing Promotional items, and that might be anything from a torch to a ball to, to a coffee cup to uh, you know think of any promotional item. Some companies have got hundreds of promotional items that they've got. If you're going to import something like like that from, uh, or if you want to sell, like I said, if you want to sell a, a wide range of promotional products, um, then to get your economies of scale or to get your costs down, you've got to bring volume in. But if you don't have a client that wants 4,000 torches, then, um, you know what I mean, like uh, if you're bringing a lot a wide variety of uh, items in, you don't have a, enough clients to, to give all those sorts, try and sell all those items too, but you need to buy them in volume to get the, to get the cost. Uh-huh. So those companies put themselves into a, a bucket, if you like, or put themselves into an area where they are trade only. So they then market themselves to companies like us So we, we are the we're the face with the client, and they are, for one of a better word, they are a trading company in behind Um, all of your printers and all of your promotional product marketing companies, the whole shooting match. So anyone that is on selling to a client, these people, these companies deal with. That's that's the that's reality is probably in behind in the background. They've probably got some major clients themselves that they will sell to under another name, but. But that's a different story. But as, on, the, on the face of it, uh, that's pretty much how the system operates. So for someone like me, if I've got a client that's um, looking for uh, 100 phone case covers or 100 coffee cups or something like that, mm-hmm. obviously I, it's not something I can go to China and, and, and bring in. So you need to have a group of suppliers over here that you can call that say, right, oh, how much for that kind of coffee cup or that kind of widget or whatever the case may be and you can then obviously buy it off them at a reasonable rate, put your markup on it, throw a logo on it, whatever the case may be, be able to sell it to your client. So that works for your small orders, and it's the only way it can work for your small orders. It works both ways in that those companies can bring in a container of and sell them to 400 people like myself around the country. or Yeah, so if they want to bring in the volume, that's, that's how they have to do it. and. It suits our end of the ship because we can't go anywhere else. You can't go offshore in a coffee cups or 50 torches. So that's pretty much how the how it, how it works. And, and I guess it's probably no different in the States or Canada or Europe or anything like that. I think you've got to have those companies that can supply that in the market. Mm-hmm. Where it then gets a little tricky is when your customer comes to you or one of your bigger customers comes to you and says, we need 20,000 tote bags or we want... Um, 10,000 coffee cups or we're doing a big promotion and we want, you know, so many thousand of XYZ. But a couple of problems there in that if anybody, any of your clients, unless you've got a, you know, unless you are so tight with a particular client that they just come to you for everything, anything of a larger nature, they're obviously going to go and get, and you'd expect them to, they're going to go and get two or three quotes. So, one of two things is going to be happening there, then your competitors are going to be going to the same trade supplies that you're going to to ask for 5,000 coffee cups or whatever the case may be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so within that those circles, they'll know that there's an order out, especially if it's a big order. Um, they'll know that they, they might get two or three inquiries from different m- promotional companies or marketing companies that are coming to them to, to buy a good variety there becomes a price war between yourself and maybe two or three or four others as to who wants to put the least amount of margin because you're all buying it from pretty much you know, one or two Same or price. That's exactly right. You're all buying it for the same price. So there's going to be exceptions to the rule, of course. But who are, so first of all, who's going to take the lowest margin? Secondly, the other elephant in the room is whether or not one of those companies that is generally supposed to be dealing trade only has got a sister company set up on the side where they obviously have got a massive advantage then in being able to fulfil a large order of anything for well under what you can even go to your customers because not only is
0: their margin included, your margin's included. Hey, what's up guys? We will return to regular scheduled program shortly, but I just wanted to let you know about a new service that we just launched. It's a design for manufacturing service. We've hired a very, very fantastic industrial designer who has experience working with uh doing dfm for south american manufacturers as well as chinese manufacturers and i think our rates are pretty reasonable in comparison to what you'd get if you're working with a company based in the us just because of labor costs right um yeah so what we can now do what SFA is now capable of doing is taking a crudely drawn item product idea on a napkin you drew it drunk in a bar or something like that and then taking it into 2d uh, giving you recommendations on the Bill of Materials and taking into 3D and CAD and having that formatted specifically for manufacturers. Right. So we're doing a beta launch at the moment. Um, official launch date is June 4th for the beta launch. Um, for anybody that gets in before the beta launch, there will be a special discount. Uh, so if you want more details, Go to the website and shoot me an email that's rico at sourcefinasia.com, R I C O at Sourcefinasia.com and just say DFM service in the subject line. Cheers. Are they supposed to have the sister sister company? Is that that's allowed? Yeah.
1: Or well, it's 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 not that it's disallowed, it's not it's not. Um, it's probably not in your best interest because you really, you know, you really have to portray yourself as either a trade only supplier or a retail supplier. Mm-hmm. So, if if it was found out that a trade only supplier was supplying directly to the end user, then certainly for us, then we wouldn't deal with that trade supplier. So, any business that they were getting from us, whether some of, and some of them are, some of them are decent accounts, some of them are not, um, then we would go listen you know, we can't do with you because if we come up against a decent deal, like, we've got no chance anyway. Like, you can just... Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of a conflict of interest there. there. There is a conflict of interest, but, you know, like anything, Rico, that sometimes doesn't always um, always matter too much. And, and please don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not sort of saying definitively that there are companies that are doing it. But, and there's not many. There might only be, you know, a handful that do do it. But when you're into the, the bigger orders, then you've got no chance. So that's sort of how that's sort of what led us to to where we were. Because going back maybe five, six, seven years ago, we started to get what we would. And, and when I talk about the volumes that I speak about, um, for some people, I guess that sounds like a lot. For for others, it won't be that. It just depends on where you sort of sit in the in the, in the spectrum of, of business. Um, and sometimes when I talk about thousands of something, I mean sometimes something's only forty cents. So when you've got ten thousand of them, it's not like it's a big, it's not like it's a big sort of um, it's a big quantity, but it may not be you know big, big in dollar value. But um, we did start to see some um, some orders creep across our desk. Um, there was one in particular that really that really got me that we just had no chance of being able to. do. Um, so going back about you know that sort of period of time some of these order, big orders started to hit our desk from our some of our existing clients and it really, and we just couldn't get them. We couldn't win them for whatever reason. And um, it just started to really get in my craw a little bit as to, and how do we, how do we, um, how do we combat this? Um, and that's really where it started. That's where the, the overseas sort of seed started to get planted, um, like I said, eight years ago, in having these orders come up and not being able to do anything about them, not being able to sort of control the destiny of them, I guess, one of a better mm-hmm. way. And it's like anything, um, you've when you've got clients, when you've got good clients and, and, and if you've got clients that are ordering in volumes that require you to go offshore to obtain that product, then you don't want somebody else playing around inside, whether it's for whether it's just for that product or whether it's
0: because once you let somebody in then you, know, you always run the risk that they'll be able to do more things for that client. So you started you start getting, you know, those orders and then you decide to start looking into importing the, the products yourself, right? Can you talk about your first steps into China, the way you did, you deal directly with factories at the beginning, or were you working with trading companies at the beginning? Sort of what what issues were you facing when you first started um, trying to do it yourself directly?
1: Yeah, that's a long. Uh, that's a long. Uh, not gonna like to use the word, but that's a long journey. That one. Um, you're, absolutely, uh, you're absolutely right. I'm even trying to think back to the very, very first thing that that I actually did, and um, the first thing I ever did. Um, and in answer to your question, it was with a trading company. Um, it's still a trading company that you and I've spoken of briefly before. Um, it's a trading company. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I do, do do something with them still um, because it's been a long time. But um, but yeah, in the very very early days, it was a uh, I actually did a swimming cap, um, a uh, silicon swimming cap for a for a swimming club. Um, okay, I remember it might have been five thousand. Or something like that. Yeah. And that was purely just from um, just getting on the internet. Um, and it wasn't through Ali Butler. I don't think I knew what Ali said in the music. Um I can of the name. I can't really remember I think it was just from trawling the internet. So we were getting these inquiries for these larger orders, and it just it just got to me one day. And um, actually, no, you know, actually, you know what actually happened? I, I was in, we were in a meeting at work, believe it or not, and um, there was a guy in a factory across the road from us that, um, that uh, came and knocked on the door. And um, he was probably the biggest sort of, not not the influence, but uh, i in, indirect sort of influence in that. Um, I think we'd done the swimming caps. I think I'd done the swimming caps, and we'd ordered those, and that that sort of went well. You know what? They weren't they weren't they weren't Hundred percent, they were okay. They did the job, but it wasn't it wasn't sort of um, they weren't sort of they were sort of great. But we'd done we'd sort of done our first thing that we'd sort of brought in from from um, from China. It was pretty sort of clunky sort of exercise, and it was done through this through this through this trading company. And then there was a guy with this meeting that we were having, and um, he knocked on the doors from. He actually re-bottled, I think it was from memory. I think it was um, shampoo, maybe shampoo and conditioner and um, had a little factory across the way there and he came and asked us about printing some labels and stuff to put on these bottles and I got to talking to him and um, he said yeah I've got these um, I've got all these bottles of um, shampoo and conditioner into and um, I'm starting to bottle my own stuff because the guys here were you know they were touching me up and then I couldn't, I couldn't make the, the margins I was making getting into stores and, and, and so I started chatting to him and it turns out and this is the Reader's Digest version, obviously, but um, he, uh, he literally jumped on the plane. I think, he, I think he even went to the Canton Fair, believe it or not, and um, and said so he went in there and he found someone to make a bottle and went to the factory and came back and had these order of bottles, these little plastic bottles. And it was at that point I went, wow. I said, hang on a sec. I said, mate, if you – and I was thinking to myself, I wasn't saying I'm thinking to myself, mate, if you can – if you can do that, if, you, if you've if you got the... And that's going back a few years ago now. So I thought, like, well, if you've got the, the balls, I guess, it's right, to get on a plane and do that, then you know what? There's, I think we can do the same thing.
0: And um, that's what we did. So, yeah, so what were... What do you remember about that time? Like, what were some of the issues that you faced when you first started communicating with with the with the with the trading company. Yeah, the trading company for that wasn't you know what that wasn't too bad, Rika. probably the bit,
1: probably the hardest thing for that one would have been the uh, the the language barrier. Certainly mm-hmm. with some of the places that I've dealt with since the, the language, the, the the comprehension of the English language which is far better than what this particular company had um, back in the time. That was probably the biggest hurdle, but being a very small order, being an order that you could um, throw on a DHL and land on your desk, which I think, um, you know, came in three or four boxes and it wasn't a big shipment, and there weren't really you know shipping documents and all sorts of stuff to go with it. That was a, it was a, it was relatively it was relatively okay. I suppose the biggest problem then was is when we we got the first shipment in, they were probably a thinner silicon than I would have liked, and there were there were. Production issues, but not enough to, you know, turn the client off. But certainly things that I would have probably preferred were better. So when we went back for rounds two and rounds three and and all of this stuff, trying to get the product actually changed to something that was better than before, that was that was the tricky
0: part, and that actually just never happened originally. Why? Why do you think that never happened? Was that uh, just communication issues, or yeah, I think it was really just
1: communication issues. I was thinking about it was probably the biggest, the biggest hurdle of that. Yeah, trying to get them to understand that we wanted a bit thicker, and then if you, I think actually they did send some samples of thicker, but thicker was thicker, and um, you know then it was too thick, and then it was you know <laughs> it was all, it was, trying to get that balance was pretty. Um, just never sort of seemed to, uh, never sort of seemed to happen. So yeah, that was that was. I mean, that's a very baby, baby case compared to you know what we've done since and 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 you know, problems and issues that we've had since then.
0: Yeah, I think the days where people get completely screwed over on their first order are kind of few and far between now. But I think what happens is. Like you said, the communication issues. Um, if if you're on your first order or second order, or whatever, if you're not sort of following the the right steps or working with, I guess, a consultant, it, there's the issues that would come up would be you know production issues, maybe them not fully understanding your requirements, or um, maybe certain things being delayed, or certain things that are normal, like their quality control issues are normal. It's mostly up to the client to sort of double check what's going on and then require the factory to to make improvements before they ship out the product so I, it makes sense like I, I mean i know a lot of people that actually one of my one of my closest friends yeah, who could get free consultation from me he he placed an order his first product like just kind of found the factory and then placed an order i think it was like the second or third supplier that he spoke to and then things worked out for like a year and it was a handshake deal but then over time he realized that he had to formalize that relationship so it can work out i just obviously i always like the reason why i do the podcast is is to encourage people to to take you know the right steps from the beginning
1: yeah you're you're absolutely right it 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 can work out and i guess again it also depends on what level you're playing at yeah for some people $1,000 thousand dollar order is a big deal. Um and and you know that might be for some people you know for the what I call the true entrepreneur, I guess, that might be everything they've saved to do towards a particular product. You know, it's a little bit easier for me to say when, you know, whilst it's 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 not something that's happened overnight, it's taken twenty years to build a to build a business. But you know, for us to to maybe dip our toe in the water with China for a thousand dollars US is not such a biggest bigger consideration as somebody that that might be everything they've saved, um, and so that also I think lends itself to the risk level you're prepared to take. I mean, if you're saying to me, "Don't worry about your thousand dollar order," how about you make a hundred thousand dollar order? Then, then wow, that's you know you're starting to you know, producing that, or even for your first order, and it doesn't. I mean, a hundred thousand is you know probably a ridiculous amount of money, but um, you know even a, even a five thousand dollar the way you in which you approach that and the uh, the the mitigating circumstances or the mitigating risks that you build into that transaction, you know, is all, it's all going to change. And and I think you're also right. I think people's first experience into doing, depending on what it is they're they're manufacturing and depending on the complexity of what it is they're trying to manufacture, like if you're doing a tote bag or a versus a, a watch, for example. I mean, they're too. The production side of things is very, very different. But I think you're right. I think people's initial interactions are better than they used to be, and that's you know, due to everything that was spoken about. But you know what? Conversely, that may be the case, but then with that comes confidence and sometimes ill-fated confidence in thinking, well, hang on a sec, that was pretty easy. Um and mm-hmm. So you sort of take a little bit bigger step and a little bit bigger step. So whilst your first interaction or your second interaction or your third interaction might've been quite um, worked out really well, um, that brings a whole set of other circumstances, I think, or a whole lot of other little traps as opposed to having your first experience, not being that good, if that
0: makes sense. Yeah. So, so you said obviously that the the first one was okay, but, it what are some of the larger or some of the the, the bigger issues that you faced? Yeah, well, from, from there, Rico, it's sort of
1: uh, what, what we did, if it, if I can just sort of expand on that. We um, we actually, our first venture really into China, our very first fair-income venture into China was actually a printing book, Um which mm-hmm. again, sort of allowed us to, you know, we've been very fortunate, I guess, in that area whilst don't get me wrong for a second. I'm very, very careful with what I do, or I try to be as careful as I can be and mitigate as many circumstances as I can. As, as you know, seeking your help to do a few things as well. Um, but our first interaction into China, and we were lucky enough to have a project to be able to go into China with, which was something I was very familiar with, and that was printing. We had a we had a small book which was wire bound, um, and I think from memory, it was only a very small book. You know, maybe it's smaller than a DL sort of thing. You know. Tw- size of your palm, or the size of your hand sort of thing. It was a little flip book and it had about, I think, about 12 or 15 little tabs in it which separated these sections. And the first job we did for our client, I guess this is a perfect example of what we're talking about, but the first time we did it for our client, they wanted 1,000 books. And that was no dramas. We printed a 1,000 books and we cut them up and then we made the tabs and we then had to, it's that sort of a job, it all has to be hand inserted. So we were doing 1,000 books and I think it was a dozen tabs involved it was like a medical sort of book. Um, So we had 12,000 tabs that had to get inserted into the correct place to volume section. So we did that without no dramas. And that was a good little job. I think it was about six months later or seven months later or something like that, I turned around and said, that was great, thanks for that. Can we get 7,000 books that then all of a sudden became a big order? And it wasn't the print order that was a big order for us. The print was easy. It was all of a sudden, um, your calculations are right, you know, you get 12 tabs on 7,000 books, all of a sudden you've got 84,000 tabs that have to be hand inserted. So the way our labour rates here in Australia, that all of a sudden becomes um, just cost prohibitive to, to be able to do that. So that's when we really ramped up our, well, that's when I really ramped up my quest for going okay. Here's a job that we can do. We know we can do this job, but we just can't do it here. Um, and then obviously you don't want them going to one of the bigger publishing houses or something else that's already got factories in China and go. Yeah, we can do that, no problem. So that's when I started the journey of to going okay. Now we do have something that's fair income. Now we do have a fair income order. Um, how are we going to skin this cat? Because we have to. We have to go offshore to do this. So I started making inquiries and um, about three or four months later found myself in Hong Kong in the actual printing factory that put the book together for us and that's how it started. So We um, we actually thought, you know what, for the sake of it, jump on a plane, go over there, go to the printing factory, sit down, watch it, look at it, see the whole thing being put together. Um, We didn't watch the whole thing put together. Obviously, we just looked at the proofs and the print and all the rest of it. Sat down with the production manager there and... You know it was all very clear and you know sat down and made sure the job went through smoothly and and that's that's how it happened. So that's how we started. and then that was in the December I think of about roughly I'm not sure to maybe twenty fourteen or something that was in the December of 2014. Uh, In the April of 2015, I was at the Hong Kong um, convention.
0: So So would you say that, I guess, the vast majority of any of the issues that you've had have been more just on the communication side of things? You haven't had any other other situations happen with delayed productions and QC issues? Uh, You know what? They say you make your own luck.
1: Um, So jumping ahead from now to then to chat about this particular point of production issues and things like that. Over the last five years, there's been a few and a couple you've been involved in yourself with with us in that. Um, we'll touch on that in a sec, but um, you know we they say you make your own luck. There is a, as you well know, I think to do this was well, certainly for us. And when I talk about things, I'm not trying to preach to to anyone as to how they should or shouldn't do something, but very much for us in our case and for me personally. To embark on this type of adventure, to embark on wanting to or being prepared to put your hand in your pocket and place orders overseas where you are paying for something before you see anything. Before sorry, you're paying for you know in most cases thirty percent before anything's ever made. Um, you might come up, you might have a couple of samples that you've got, but that's as you will know, is no indication of no one hundred percent indication of what's going to pop out the other end to paying 100% for something that hasn't even been put in a container yet before it fails towards you, I think, well, for us, involved a massive, massive amount of research, um, a massive amount of hours in searching for And I'm just talking about one product. So you might find one product um, that you're looking for. And for us, it's a little bit like you um, in that our phone can ring and I can be looking for any any particular product as opposed to being someone that's developing their own product and they're looking at something very, very specific like a set of headphones, whatever it is they are making themselves to then go to, to China to source a company to build it. We are dealing in absolutely anything can get thrown on our desk to, you know, from packing ribbons to, to, to anything. So, so when something hits our desk, um, it may be something I've never researched before. So there's a massive, massive amount of research that goes into it and um, into being comfortable and, and, and whittling down the number of supplies that you get because as soon as you put out a request, you're going to get a lot of answers and a lot of people coming at you offering to offering to fulfil the order that you're putting out there or offering to fulfil the quote. So you've got to then start sifting through all of that and that's a, a massive process to sift through all of those people, all of those suppliers, all of those people are inquiring with you before you even get to a stage where you might narrow it down to half a an dozen of them, and then you'll start to even then you'll start to concentrate on the product. So we spend a lot of time, and I'm in mean a lot of time researching. What we're going to bring in from overseas. So when I say we've been quite fortunate in production issues through communication, I only say that on the back of a lot of work. And even then, even then, when you have done the work, there's no guarantee that um, that it's going to turn out well, and it hasn't turned out well in all cases. But for the most, the production side has been, like I said, not without a massive amount of research and work behind it. I think probably where more our problems came, Rigo, was um, probably more in the actual shipping of things and the domestic side of things and the regulations from our customs and. Border control and quarantine people and things like that. That's where something that you've done perfectly overseas, um, everything that you've done has gone perfect. But then all of a sudden it's sitting on the dock in in Sydney, and you can't get your hands on it because you haven't ticked all the boxes and crossed all the dotted your eyes and crossed all your t's as far as customs or border control to 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 get it out. So when you start talking about problems, that's where that's that then it can really escalate.
0: So that's actually a perfect segue because that's kind of one, something I wanted to touch on was some of the unique um, import regulations to Australia. Uh, so maybe you can talk about that a little bit. And one thing I'm curious about is how often are the factories like familiar with uh, the entire process? So did you did you sort of lean on some of the factories and their freight forwarders to 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 tell you? You know what documentation you needed at the beginning, or was it something that you sort of had figured figured out as you went along?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. An answer to your first bit. Uh, no, certainly no reliance on a factory in China to have the correct paperwork for um, for border control here in Australia. I guess for, if if I was to give any advice, and sorry, not advice, but if I was to to one one thing that I think the is critical especially here in Australia and I'm not sure it might be different around the world um, because you have made mention of this before so it would be interesting to know if we are stricter here than, than some other places um, but a, a very good freight forwarder here without question is worth more than gold. Um, having a freight forwarder and a customs broker to do that for you here in Australia is um, I have a very very much got a passion for doing this sourcing in China, as you know. I don't have a passion for customs and documents and um, trying to understand all of the regulations that are required for every single different piece of equipment or every different piece of product that you want that that you might want to bring into a country. So, for us, our freight forwarders and our custom brokers are they're my they're my lifeline because without them, as as you and I'll probably touch on in a minute, we you know. You can have some massive, massive problems, Um, and they're not problems that happen in China. They're they're problems that are they're happening here in your own country. So, for us in Australia, um, you know we are quite strict down here. Um, but you know it's sort of like an island. It's a big island, but it's an island. um, Sort of you know away from everything else. So our quarantine, um, our and border control for pests and all sorts of things like that. Um, it's very very strict. Um, even down to the point where, if you ask the factory to uh, palletise a product for you because you don't want it to come over in single cartons on a ship or a or a flight for that for that matter, um, they use timber pallets. Those timber pallets must be fumigated before they land here in Australia. So there are there is documentation which I think you've seen that we need to fill out, and that's just for your pallets. Um, mm-hmm. We did a we we did a project where. Um, and this, and when you start, to, when you talk about traps, um, this is this was this was one little one that almost that I came very close to. Well, sorry, that did sort of get me a little bit in that we had um, we purchased some pencils, little kids' pencils, or six, uh-huh. and there was quite a few of them. They were all palletized up, ready to go, and it was only through chatting to my customs people they said yeah when we started to organize the uh, the shipment and this was an foB shipment from the uh, from the factory when we organized all of that it was literally ready to be to be picked up uh, sorry it was literally ready to be taken from the factory to the port um, and our customs clearance guys said um, so you so is this you're talking you bring pencils in are you and I said yeah yeah, yeah. Um, which is a lesson I've learned is that I now get onto them a little earlier than I used to
0: to tell them they've got an import coming in in case there is something that needs to be done with it. Um, yeah, you want to you be talking to the shipping companies like two to three weeks prior to the production being done.
1: Absolutely, and you've and you hit the nail on the head prior to the production
0: being done, not, not, not prior to the thing being ready to ready to leave the factory. Um, I mean, I, actually, ideally, you want to talk to them at the beginning, but I, I know that... I mean I guess you want to talk to them at the beginning if just because if there's specific things like certain certificates that you need to have that might be made, that might be actually uh, actually a deal breaker with the with the factory that you're dealing with but I know at the same time if you don't have a good relationship with this shipping company or freight forwarder they're going to feel like you're wasting their time if you're talking to them about something that's going to be completed in 2 months you're you
1: in, know in the <laughs> Absolutely hit the nail. You have to. It's, it's it's a juggling game. It's a juggling game, and that's why I say having a, a good one because when you're starting out, well I found when I started out, I, I'm actually dealing with my second freight forwarding company because and I and I feel sorry for them because I think the first chaps that I was using, I just I, I used to just bust their ear too much because <laughs> because I didn't know anything. So every time I went to do something, I was ring going, how do I do this and when do I do this and blah blah blah. And we weren't really spending much money with them in the early days. Um, so in the end, they're just going, mate. What are you, you know, what are you doing? Like you, you're just, you're just killing us. So um, it, it was sort of like lucky for the second one that we got involved with. We were sort of a lot further down the track. So um, you're absolutely right. You've got to. You don't want to be bombarding them too much, but you still need to be able to when you've got something that's fair income and on the go and ready to roll. That you are asking the right questions before it is produced.
0: I all right, so that's the end of part one of uh, the DPS special. <laughs> There's going to be part two coming out soon, um, so stay tuned for that. And like I said, if you want to join me in Chiang Mai, I'm going to be hosting an event for the sourcing table. There's going to be a link in the show notes, and any of the references that we mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes at Made in China. The YouTube channel, SourceFinAsia, all one word, Instagram, SourceVyonesia, and of course, just our general website, SourceVyonesia.com. Cheers.